G'day and welcome to another episode of Occupied. Those of you who have been listening for a little while will probably remember Jacqueline from a previous episode where we talked about language uh, and I'm absolutely stoked to have her back. Uh, with her this time though is her partner Greg uh, and we wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into the neurodivergent experience uh, within this neurotypical world and what are the implications that that has uh, for therapists, uh, for the general population uh, and things that we need to be aware of that we can improve uh, how we allow uh, access and don't allow ableism into our practices. So sit down, grab a drink, please enjoy Jacqueline and Craig. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So, let's start with the Neurodiversity OT promotion. I've noticed you've been putting out a lot. Your information is always a lot of information, but it's also very digestible, which I also like because I'm a simple person and I can actually understand what you're talking about. So... Firstly, where did that idea, that concept, or that sort of brainchild come from initially? Um, so we were, I think, about a semester through our OT program mm-hmm. um, when the idea kind of came about. And it was really just in response to being hit with the program well the pervasive ableism that's within our profession um and we weren't really being exposed to conversation around neurodiversity much but when it was brought up it was always this very deficit-based lens where we need to treat and remediate and fix um and that, that's just not the way that we see it. And, and that's not the sentiment that we were hearing from the autistic community that we've engaged with online. And um, yeah, it, it just didn't sit with us, I, right, I guess. Um, and so I approached Greg about it. Um, and I, should, I guess I should explain like our partnership and how that evolved as well. Sure. Okay. Um, Yeah. So Greg and I are partners in many aspects of life. (laughs) So we're engaged. Uh, We did meet in OT school. Um, And actually, our relationship started with our shared interest um, in neurodiversity. And, you know, the first day of class, he introduced himself as autistic. And yeah, I, I just was uh, interested and, and wanted to know more about him. Um, and so I would send him my papers to be edited. And honestly, they didn't need to be edited. <laughs> <But> <laughs> and then um, in autistic 
fashion, we would exchange articles and information to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, things kind of just took off from there. What would you add to that? <laughs> um, yeah, I think OTs for Neuro was, was a, and the sharing of articles and stuff like that was uh, filling a void that we weren't a knowledge gap that we weren't necessarily getting, at least in first semester for sure, um, in OT school. And we both kind of went into OT school with very um, realized ideas of what population we want to work with, what kind of things we want to do after school. Um, whereas it feels like a lot of other people were like, okay, I want to experience a dozen different things and see where I fall. Um, we kind of were like, okay, this is my narrow set of interests and um, I would like to be learning about this. Mm -hmm. And so the sharing of articles, which is also a very autistic thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So the sharing of articles and stuff was kind of um, us helping each other fill in those gaps. And, um, and I was, and I'm late diagnosed um, with autism. I had, I was ADHD, you know, a couple other things, and then autism when I was 21. So my involvement within the neurodiverse community is very, very, very recent because um, I worked through undergrad, so I didn't have time to do community engagement, or at least I didn't maybe have interest. <laughs> um, so uh, I felt like by doing this project, it was a good way for us to keep our keep our minds sharp, keep learning about these concepts that we want to um, to make a part of our practice, and also for a way for me to learn more about my community and become more involved with um, with people that were mm -hmm. like me. Yeah, and I think one thing we've also both been personally working on as well is just our own identities as neurodivergent practitioners. And this is something that I've very recently come to discover about myself um, because like my whole life, I've always, and I think I explained this on the last podcast with you, Brock, I've always thought that I was different in some ways, and it's always been difficult for me to communicate and connect. Um, and I've always felt like I'm kind of just on the sidelines watching how people do things. And I don't, um, I don't do things the same way. <laughs> and, um, also, like having relationships with autistic and other otherwise neurodivergent people um, and just being exposed to them, I realized how easy it is for me to communicate with them as compared to neurotypicals. And I was like, wait, there's, there's something here. Um, so no, I'm not like diagnosed or anything, but I definitely identify right now as being neurodivergent and plan to pursue a diagnosis in the future when I'm ready. Um, but yeah, it's it's been, I guess, a way for me to realize why my advocacy has always been so um, personally impactful and meaningful. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, I always wondered why I was so driven to to enact this change for a population that I wasn't a part of and then realizing I was a part of it, like it kind of all just made sense. <laughs> so just, just on that quickly with regards to the diagnosis, what, I guess, what benefit is there 
of actually pursuing it if you already sort of have this understanding of your own uh, like personal attributes and that sort of thing? Like what, what's the benefit of getting that formal diagnosis? Mm. Okay. I feel like you should talk first about what okay. it's done for you. And, and I still have mixed it's, feelings about it. Um, number one, it's, well, for me, it was a shock. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't seeking it. It came out of left field. But um, I think, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that, especially with autism, the autistic community, and particularly with, um, with females, it is okay to not be formally diagnosed. Um, and we will accept you as, as autistic if you feel that that's what your identity is. Mm -hmm. um, because the way that the, the criteria for di the diagnostic criteria is designed, it's, mm -hmm. it's very male centric and very yeah. Literally, young the data child, children. is based on white males that they assessed so kids yeah that they assessed that, so it's very DSM? hard yes yeah. for the yeah. dsm um yes so um and females typically present in a different way um it is a spectrum everybody presents in a different way mm -hmm. um so i think it's first important to recognize that a a diagnosis is not necessarily required but um, from all the research, all the from all the lived experience, like you know, posts, articles, whatever that I've read, it's um, it's a very validating experience, and it kind of solidifies like, okay, this is me, um, and then here's a community that I can be a part of, and it's it's we have we've recently added a team member to our um, OTs for Neuro team. Um, she's a recent couple of years ago graduate um, from UNC um, occupational therapy. And she was one of our fieldwork advisors earlier on in school. And she, within the last couple months, was diagnosed um, as autistic. And it's been really cool watching her like discover all of these things about herself and be mm -hmm. like, oh, that was me stimming. Oh, that was me trying to navigate just difficult situ like social mm -hmm. situations. Oh, this is why I don't like my yeah, kids hugging. And it's, it's like liberation to unmask. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it comes with that validation piece. And, you know, it's really sad that like the way our society is set up, like people aren't validated mm. without a diagnosis and, and you, you don't really have access to services and support without it. Um, I think the autistic community has come a long way in accepting those who are self-identified because of all the barriers there are, financial, um, just like demographics, um, to people getting a diagnosis in the first place. Um, but yeah, it, it can be really an opportunity for, um, for someone to just express themselves as authentically autistic and embrace that identity. And yeah, it's been amazing seeing, I mean, you've really, I think in the last couple of years come to understand yourself so much better because of it. Mm -hmm. And then also find community, which is a huge, huge aspect of, uh, I believe so important to quality of life for mm -hmm. neurodivergent people. Yeah, um, they For find they, yeah. well all all people, and they, you know they find community in different ways. Well, I feel uh, like I feel like neurotypical people don't necessarily have that barrier. Like, there's not a social or a stigma barrier or anything to actually finding that community. So it's probably easier uh, in a lot of or 
I'm not saying in every case, but in a lot of just as a generalization, it's probably easier. There's less barriers to finding that community mm-hmm. by the sounds of it. Yeah. And yeah, autistic people love to congregate in online communities in particular, um, just because there's less abstract social demands, I would say. Um, and you can be like in your own sensory environment from your computer. Mm. Um, so yeah, autistic community is, is pretty fascinating. And I would say there's a whole culture to it. Um, and, and that's really the premise of the neurodiversity paradigm is that autism is a natural and worthy variation of humanity and should be acknowledged as diversity, just like any other aspect of diversity. And with that unique set of characteristics and um, autistic people have their own social norms and ways of communicating, they've created a culture. Um, And it's a really beautiful thing, I think. And I think think it's important to, to just recognize that neurodiversity is that natural variation of, of, you know, the human brain. And we're talking about autism here today. And that might just be because, you know, I'm autistic and that's what's the first thing you think of when you think of neurodiversity, but we are also like, it is also encompassing, you know, ADHD and um, mental illness, yeah, mental illness, anxiety disorders, OCD. Um, there's a lot of different things that fall under that bubble because mm all brains do fall within that that natural like diverse brain diversity um just like plants in a rainforest um and that's where they really got the term from is biodiversity um so in the same rules that apply for autism uh, apply for other things like um we're involved with the b3 coffee and our board one of our other um founders it has adhd um, and i have adhd And like, we totally vibe, like we can communicate on this like ADHD level that other people can't necessarily Mm -hmm. access because it's, it's because it's like, my brain is thinking the same way I can make the connections where she's jumping around. Um, So it's, there are those communities, there are those uh, spaces where when you find people that are of your neurotype, it's just so much easier to connect. And that's something that a lot of people that are neurodiverse are, neurodiverse are missing because um, there's a lot of neurotypicals out there and, well, and they're it, able to connect easier with each other than we are with And them. autism also or other neurodivergences are so pathologized that there's shame mm. around them. So you don't, people aren't always super open to embracing that as their identity. And so I think that's really part of the problem and um, the barrier to accessing community and support is like you, you don't want to be associated with it because it's it's seen as a flaw like oh yeah I've, I've i've got a good friend you may know them but i won't call them out uh who's just i think about 12 months ago got a diagnosis of of autism herself uh and it's been fascinating like i talked to her very regularly uh and but it's been fascinating watching her navigate how it's almost like this whole like a lot of stuff from her past now makes sense uh but also 
the initial thing was like, there's this whole big thing that's just been added to my identity. Like, how do I make sense of it kind of thing? Um, and watching her reach out and connect with uh, a number of other OTs uh, that are mm. also neurodiverse, um, a couple of them that I knew, and I was like, oh, I didn't know that about you. Um, those kind of, yeah. It's been really interesting watching her sort of evolve into this new identity. Um, yeah, and that identity negotiation is not a linear process at all. No, I could imagine. Um, yeah, it's it's super complex. And I mean, for some people, the experience of diagnosis can be traumatizing because first of all, autistic people don't tend to like change. And that is like, sounds like totally life changing. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't like change. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's, what was I going to say? I had something that to build off of that. Oh, identity work. Yeah. I was um, just about to do that. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Um, I have it written down. This is something that I've started incorporating into my practice just because it is so vital to this whole concept of, of acceptance and celebrating neurodiversity. Um, and yeah, I've, I've worked with several autistic adolescents who really just don't even know how to explain their neurodivergence. Like they, they just know that they have this label is pretty much it. Um, mm. And parents are often resistant to um, even telling people about their diagnosis, which is really problematic or, or, ex or explaining it in a way that makes sense to them. Um, so this is something okay. I've been, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I've been working on with several clients is just like, okay, here's what autism means to me and how I experience it. Like, how, like, how do you say it in your own words? And then here's what my learning style is. Here's what my support needs are. Here's what my favorite STEM is. Mm. Uh, this is how I like to communicate, um, etc. Like, like, you should be empowered to know these things about yourself, because mm. that's that's who you are. And I know you talk about this a lot, Brock, but like, there's not enough emphasis on being within our profession. Um, and it's always about doing. And I think in order to do what you want and need to do, you need to, to feel comfortable and safe within who you are. Um, and so that I, that identity work is, is so critical to well-being and, occupation and just it, everything it's interesting because they talk about about that kind of stuff a lot in like trauma theories where you know the person the first thing they need is to feel safe and generally what they're talking about is environmentally whether it's in the home and that sort of stuff but from an identity point of view i feel like the same concepts still work like you still need to before anything else before you can do become all of that other stuff you still need to feel safe and comfortable in who you are intrinsically as well as you know maslow's kind of thing with their environment and whatnot so i that's definitely something i've always uh, felt a, a kinship with that kind of concept of it's almost like taking a i guess taking a trauma theory to a more of an identity theory and combining them into a little baby <laughs> it's um I think it's important that we also note that 
like identity work is central to to adopting this neurodiversity paradigm within the profession um, because parents, um, individuals who are diagnosed, typically their first exposure to the idea of like, oh, you are autistic um, or you have a diagnosis of autism is their first experience, their first um, like seed of knowledge is coming from professionals who have a deficit-based mindset, um, who are like, okay, you have autism. Here's what we can do to fix it. Yeah. We can put you in these social skills classes, Google autism online. You're going to find autism. Here's what speak. I read in a book. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I don't, and I, and I don't, um, I never hold like parents like to that standard of like, oh, well, you should know about the neurodiversity paradigm because when they are exposed to it and when they look up these resources online, it is, it is um, like in the format of a cure-based kind of model. So you only know what you know. Mm. And, um, and by adopting this neurodiversity paradigm as a profession, we can begin to shift some of the narratives um, within the individual lives as people learn about their diagnosis, mm. as they begin to explore um, positive identity affirming like, you know, self-actualization and recognize, like you said, mm. how they are internally, um, that journey is going to continue. Um, but being in a, in a, a positive space internally is really essential for being, you know. Yeah. And, and one thing that Greg and I always like to acknowledge as well is that not everyone is going to have a positive perception of their disability and that's okay. I was about to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ableism basically taints every aspect of our world. And for someone to embrace themselves and, and feel confident in being autistic or neurodivergent, that is a radical thing to do. And we should not expect every person to have the capacity to do that um, just because of uh, the cultural narratives that surround them about what their disability is, or maybe it really has like a significant impact on their daily functioning. And, um, you know, there's a lot of autistic people that you'll talk to who said, if I could take a pill, I would mm. to be cured. Um, so the most important thing is just, you know, being client centered, this is, this is OT, meeting people where they're at in their own identity journey and coming alongside them. Um, and I mean, I, I think that you want to expose them to an alternative way of looking at their disability, but don't force it. Mm. Yeah. I feel like, and I guess that's one of the things that's always interested me about the, like even so far what we've talked about today the language that's used within uh, this neurodiversity paradigm that you've mentioned is so different from any other population that I've encountered through OT, where a lot of other population, like I've worked predominantly in mental health, well, not predominantly, the whole my whole career has been in mental health. Um, and a lot of the populations that I've encountered through that work the language used, it's always pushed person first language. So it's always a person with 
disability, a person with schizophrenia, a person with bipolar, etc. But it's also, uh, that's always been, I'm fine using that language if that's what the person wants. But it, to me, I've it's never sat right that, yes, person first language sounds polite, but it's setting up an us and them straight from the start. It's like, you are a person mm-hmm. and you have this. I am a person and I don't have that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now what? Um, what's the point in mentioning it at all if that's not actually going to help? This paradigm that you guys are talking about with this neurodiversity paradigm, yes, it sets it up. Uh, I mean, it is, it's, I, I think that the general public would understand that there is our spectrum because the word spectrum has been used probably since the word autism. I feel like that language sits better with that concept of it being a spectrum in that I, who don't have a formal diagnosis and don't necessarily um, identify with any particular neurodivergent diagnosis, technically still fit on that spectrum, but just at, you know, right up this end, according to my identity. I feel like that is a much better way of looking at for for a clinician to get their head around, you know, people's experiences and that sort of stuff, it's a much better way um, to actually look at conditions. Would you agree? Because I'm wondering. I guess what I'm wondering overall is, is this a model that technically could be used, like a language used, in other communities? Because I feel like that's where a lot of stigma comes from is yes, we're still labeling people with these labels, but there's no, that us and them still sets up a stigma. Um, Yes, this is, I know where she's going. Just go ahead. I know what you're saying. (laughs) I mean, language is so powerful and I know that you recognize this, Um, but Identity first language tends to be embraced within the autistic community. And by that, I mean, autistic person versus person with autism. Mm. Um, And this idea of person first language actually does not come from the disability community itself. It comes from... I've always wondered that because I've never heard a person with a disability ask me to talk like that. It all all comes from lecturers and textbooks and... No, it's it really comes from the medical models inherent stigma around disability that oh we want to separate people from disability because that's mm. not a good thing. Externalize that's it. Something to be ashamed of. So yeah, it's why would you want to attribute someone with um a disability? I, I guess is kind of the reasoning behind that. Um and yeah, then I could go on to talk about like euphemisms, like special needs. And, you know, again, we're just trying to soften disability to make it more palatable for able-bodied people. And that's just not helpful <laughs> to the disability community at all. Like I personally consider disability as a neutral existence, not necessarily positive or negative. Um, and yeah, I, why don't you explain like your own perception of identity first language? I feel like that would um, be helpful. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I feel like 
disability is, is a, it's a benign word because it is a way of being. Um, and the approach I've always taken is it, it should be up to the individual um, to make that decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you as a therapist um, or as a family member or whomever, uh, validate what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. and um, use whatever language they use and give them yeah lose what language they use give them the opportunity to explore the different aspects of their identity identity like we were talking about um i i know this i i know she wrote this down is um the deaf community really kind of was the the, the front runners in this because they identify as i'm deaf not i'm a person who is deaf um and they modeled that for Mm -hmm. essentially the other neurodiverse community groups. yeah other disability groups um, and also deaf culture is really a thing mm. um, oh yeah well, very I've, I've, I actually <laughs> have worked with a few people within deaf culture and the different even the subcultures within that it was a whole nother world yeah it was amazing and fascinating yeah and that's how it feels when you enter into a, a neurodiverse space is like you just, and honestly, I find it so refreshing because people are just who they are and there's no conformity to social expectations at all. All of that is just out the window and you, you, there's no like set structure to conversations. You don't have to greet people and say, oh, how are you? Like you just dive right into it. You talk about the special interests, um, like autistic people are so just full of insight about the world that that other people don't aren't attuned to just because of their sensory experience and mm. just their way of absorbing information. And like it is a way of being and like it's an incredible way of being. And um, I just wish that our profession acknowledged that and um and took a stance of cultural humility like we do with other groups um yeah was maybe we could talk about the double empathy problem this is a big concept um okay. that's talked about within the neurodiversity uh movement and essentially it's the idea that um breakdown in communication Actually, I'm going to backtrack here. Okay. So we're constantly expecting autistic people to um, basically be in line, be aligned with neurotypical standards. Mm -hmm. Whereas as neurotypicals or, or neurotypicals are not often um taking strides to better understand and communicate with autistic people. It's always them yep, who are doing the way. work. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other side of this, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, like a good example is that we, a lot of times there are social skills trainings or workshops or whatever, or perspective taking and perspective yeah. taking occurs or is, taught to neurodivergent individuals, but perspective taking is not taught to um, neurotypicals. neurotypicals. Yeah. So there's social stories, which 
um, honestly, they have potential to be helpful if they're used for neurodivergent students to understand neurotypicals and vice versa, neurotypicals to understand neurodivergent people. Yep. But unfortunately, they're only used to promote conformity <laughs> and, and say, oh, so here's how the neurotypical is understanding how you acted. And so you don't want to do that. Um, yeah, so that's just problematic. But there's been research coming out that shows that neurotypical or neurodivergent to neurodivergent communication is actually just as effective as neurotypical to neurotypical communication because they have their own patterns hmm. of communication, um, just like neurotypicals do. Um, and so it's, it's not inherently um, a deficit. It's, no. it's just that they are functioning in a dominantly neurotypical world and culture and and that's where the breakdown is happening across neurotypes that's going to bring me up to something that i do want to bring up with you guys because i want your opinion on this uh this is a debate that i had with some of my students last semester Ooh, fun cool and the question i posed to them is uh, the example we were using was a, a person with paraplegia but you can insert any diagnosis here can you have that condition and not be disabled um in a in a perfect world it, it really depends on what it is but i but i think in a perfect world the answer would be no if we're uh, if we're using the social model disability you which, mean like they wouldn't be disabled yeah, if society yeah. was constructed in a way that basically was 100% accessible and 100% supportive of the deficits, that the challenges, I mean, that they do have mm -hmm. um, and was able to meet those challenges in a way that allows them to basically navigate the world as if there is no challenge, um, then no, um, because society would be facilitating their access mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean as but it like depends. In, in, it really depends. in reality though i i see it as a disability um because it's <laughs> the world is not set up to optimally support people with physical access needs like that so so I guess the answer is, <laughs> number one, yes, it is a disability because the world will never be this perfect world. Um, but, but in a hypothetical world and on also, another planet. Like, I don't know, there's just this underlying assumption with this whole debate, though, that we should avoid disability. And I don't think that we should necessarily. Like, and that's really the whole again, the, the concept of neurodiversity is that disability is just part of humanity and, and we should accept that. And there's, it's, it's actually just part of human evolution and, and it could happen to anyone at any time. And um, there's a lot of innovation and creativity that comes out of people having different needs. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts, Brock? <laughs> 
This is exactly why I posed this to you guys. Okay. <laughs> um, so I got a whole range of thoughts from all different students. Uh, my personal thought is um, probably more along the lines of what Greg was saying with regards to the disability by definition is more society not being able to facilitate a person's needs. That doesn't mean the disability, in my opinion, and again, I know I'm coming from a very privileged position in saying this, but the disability isn't necessarily the person's issue kind of thing. It's the inability for society. Whereas if I put that same, say, with the person with paraplegia example, I put them in the middle of Africa, then obviously there's a lot less support needs than if they're right here wherever they live, say, in Australia or in America. That didn't mean that their physical condition changed, but I can guarantee you there's going to be a lot more things that they can't do in the middle of Africa, in the desert somewhere, than in a a relatively well-supported community. Yes, like you pointed Mm -hmm. out, Greg, it's not perfect. uh, And, you know, that's the goal, the dream would be to have that perfect world. And that's something I think we should be aiming for. But Mm -hmm. from a disability, I guess, looking at it from a construct point of view, Mm -hmm. I see it more as that. Yeah. I think that's that a really good like litmus test of like how disability looks, how it um, impacts the individual, whatever disability it is within uh, different parts of the world, different cultures, mm. different social like dynamics, different, um, you know, support, like you said, different existing supports, mm. different uh, motivation to create new supports. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it definitely, disability definitely looks different across the world and um we are definitely in a a, a privileged area uh, as well um but that doesn't mean that we can't get better um and we shouldn't try to get better like i wonder in in your example like you're talking about before if your experience in getting to know yourself with autism and that sort of stuff would be very different if you were in a place where you weren't able to connect with that community Oh, absolutely. Like, would you feel, I, like, a, for lack of a better term, like, more disabled, not being able to do those or have those supports and connect with that community and learn all the things that you've learned yeah. about yourself so far? Yeah. I mean, disability is so just fluid across contexts. <laughs> like, mm. it is constructed by the environments that we're in. But I also do want to point out that there has been some critique of the social model of disability because we are putting so much emphasis on the environment as or, or the society as being the disla- disabler. Mm-hmm. But there are many disabilities. Um, you know, think of chronically ill people or mental illnesses. I mean, yeah, mental mental illness, that there really are a lot of personal factors Mm. involved. And no matter how perfect you make the environment, they're still going to be disabled. And you know what? We need to accept and validate those people too. Um, And so, yeah, I I think we need to be careful about saying that um, it's all the environment because, again, we're trying to diminish disability and make it um, more digestible for us. <laughs> like mm. when um, really 
like it, it is a reality that people deal with every single day. Um, yeah. yeah, and I and I that's exactly kind of what I had at the forefront of my mind when I was saying it really does depend because there are certain disabilities where um, just it, it doesn't really matter what you put in place. There's still going to be something. There's still going to be challenges um, that are going to be faced by that individual. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think some. Operating in binaries is never helpful for the, the profession answer, is what I've realized. I'm going to give you like a little a cheat. The answer to every question in the universe, it pretty depends. much, including <laughs> including the meaning of life is it depends. Yep, you got Electra. it. There All we right. go. But yeah, I mean, I don't think social model or medical model really gets at the essence of what disability is because it's just too complex. Well, that's, and I guess kind of what you just said then about working in binaries is kind of why I've been trying to get my head around where the concept of disability comes from, because I feel like it's too often used within a health um, field as just this blanket statement to cover anyone. Whereas mm -hmm. that's where I feel like, even though sort of the, the concept of neurodivergent is again, kind of a blanket thing that it's very specific in what actually fits under that umbrella whereas mm -hmm. disability is kind of anything like i can disable my car by taking one wheel off it if i wanted to like it's it's a very broad blanket to throw over everything and i feel like often this the uh, well, quite often the stigma but probably all of, sometimes some of the other issues that are associated with some conditions, then you, you kind of paint everything with the one brush under that broader term. Whereas I, I what I really like with the, I, I guess the, the neurodivergent stuff that you're putting out on your, your Instagram and that sort of content is it's about, like we've spoken about today, like accepting that this is, uh, you, you called it a culture earlier on, like it, accepting that this is a part of normal human existence and not, uh, you know, something that we need to try and fix or get rid of or change or assimilate into a neurotypical world. I just feel like, I f yeah, I don't know. I, I struggle to comprehend how, and I know that a lot, some people definitely will have the sort of concept of disability as part of their identity, and that's 100% fine. I just struggle to get my head around how I feel like this neurodivergent community is making really big strides ahead um, for themselves and almost like the, the blanket construct of disability is kind of almost holding down this really innovative uh, promotion, I guess, and, and awareness of specific diagnoses to the general public. And again, like I said, I'm coming from a very different place to you guys, so I could be completely off, but that's just my outsider's perspective. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a couple things. So I have some thoughts on why the disability justice movement is behind in some ways, other, um, other social justice movements 
And I think it's because like you're saying, disability is so abstract Mm. and it's hard for people to grasp, like, whereas you can easily see like, and conceptualize like different races or Mm. I guess genders is more fluid, but like there's other aspects of diversity that are just more obvious to people. Um, And I, and also like it's there's so there's so many different conditions that fall under disability that I think it's hard for the disability community to congregate and really like gain momentum Mm. um and then also like there's this idea of disability not always being visible which I think is hard for people um when it's not visible like it 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 tends to be, um, I guess, un- not undermined. Or like, what would you say? And not seen as necessarily as valid. Yeah. Um, I've, I've like heard it the, described as not a real disability before. Yeah, not a real disability. Mm. With the disability like movement, um, to be effective, the people you want on the front lines are people in wheelchairs, people with Down mm. syndrome, people that you can see, mm-hmm. oh, this person has a disability, you know? not people with a mental illness um, or ADHD or something like that, yeah. because, um, and, and that's unfortunate, but that's, that's the way it's kind of been. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel that disability inherently invites introspection within an individual. When you see an, when you see a disability into your own vulnerabilities as like a human being, like I could become, I could, something could happen in my life. And at some point i will become disabled in some way. Mm-hmm. And people don't like to think about that because that's mm-hmm. a scary thought. So it's less, it, there's that vulnerability tied to it. Whereas with with diff- other differences, um, like- Yeah, um, it, it probably has less, um, like, like they can't make that same type mm-hmm. of personal connection to it. So Yeah, that makes sense. I um, guess, especially things that are, you know, it's sort of lifelong or their, their uh, ideology is, you know, they're, they're outside of the, the normal development age for whatever it is, that kind of stuff. I can understand where we're like, oh, I'm not going to get that. That's never, I can't relate to that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, if you para, paraplegia, for example, I know I keep coming back to that example, but it's a very obvious one. Like, oh yeah, I could have a car crash tomorrow on the way to work. Mm-hmm. And that could be me, um, where it's yes, something that right. I think a lot more people could relate to because it's something that, like you said, has the potential for to be them at some point. Yes. So I also wanted to say a, a huge driver, I think, of, of what we call the inaccessibility cycle is a lack of positive visibility. Um, okay. So this is really the whole idea of B3 coffee. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, well, this is a perfect segue. (laughs) Um, but because we're, or many people are not often exposed to disability or when you do, it's just like stereotypical representations in media. Um, there's just this inherent discomfort around it. Um, so you know, like if you talk to a neurodivergent person for the first time, it's, it's just such a novel thing that like you, you kind of become stuck and like, you don't know how to interact. 
Um, and, and I think that's like the underpinning of stigma is just our lack of familiarity with it. And like, um, yeah, so, so when there is authentic representation of people with disabilities, invisible and visible, like, and, and there could be connections across different populations, that's where the, the, the change is gonna happen um, and how we perceive and reconcile differences. Um, so yeah, B, B3 Coffee is essentially that platform for people to be in a dignified role in their community mm-hmm. and using the way that coffee brings people together, which is really profound, honestly, um, we can create these natural interactions across people who may not otherwise encounter each other. And then they form a connection, they can build a relationship and, and they can learn to, I guess, better appreciate and, and understand differences. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, couple of things off of that. Um, number one, it is, it's very clear with, with disability, like there is, there is a hierarchy, there is a power dynamic between, um, you know, individuals with disabilities and those without disabilities. Um, the, there's like the normal, the normative standards of what being is supposed to be, although there is no normal, mm. um, we're all different. And everybody is measured up to those standards. And um, society has a way of identifying people who are different and then marginalizing them um, because of their differences. So because there's that hierarchy and because there's that power uh, dynamic, the positive visibility, like she was talking about, um, Mm -hmm. is in many cases um, like a little hazardous. Um, and that's why what you were asking about earlier, you're talking about how if the community, um, knowing that I have a community behind me that um, is like me and that has my back, if that has impacted my identity development, um, definitely, because to take those steps of um, for autism, unmasking and being more authentic myself within, you know, class or whatever social situation where, where um the normal social, like the social norms are, are, you know, in play. Um, it is a little risky because of those power dynamics, because I am um, devalued. My role is devalued within society mm-hmm. as an individual with a yeah, disability. It's radical. Um, it's- yeah. So, but one thing I've, and, and this relates to B3, which is why I was bringing it up. One thing that I've found is that accessibility, like, so my, unmasking within the professional space has happened. I kind of cranked, it was a goal I started in like a new year's resolution. I don't follow those, but I was like at the the beginning of the year, I was like, I'm going to crank up that unmasking, um, being more authentic within the workspace. And um, we had, we had one class where we were doing these like case studies and stuff. And um, I didn't like the, I naturally reject like all rules and things that are placed upon me and the class it's, I was not feeling how it was it's structured this is a certain profile of autism if anyone's interested it's pathological, pathological demand avoidance is how it's been pathologized but really what we call it is pervasive drive for autonomy <laughs> so sounds like punk rock to me I like it yeah yeah anarchist um, anyway so 
resistance to demands. Go yes, ahead. resistance to demands. And I didn't really like how the class was structured. So it was advised that I take the um, facilitator lead role for one of the uh, case studies. And when I did that, I was like, you know what, this is a good opportunity to be my authentic neurodivergent self. And I created these suggested rules of like, um, make basically making more accessible. Like I want everybody to, when they have their homework at night, be identify topics that you think would be relevant for your future or identify topics that you think would be interesting to look up instead of just, we're picking these boring topics and then we spend an hour or whatever looking at something we're never gonna use again. Um, also feel free to present it in multiple formats of video, visuals. It doesn't just need to be bullet points. And I created these things that for me would make the material more accessible and interesting for me and everybody like liked it. So accessibility plays well for all. Um, and that's one of the big things that we, we highlight with B3. It benefits everyone. It's mm. not just for people with disabilities, but that also means we need to flip the power hierarchies as Greg is talking about. If people, if disabled people are not in positions of leadership, then the work is in vain because yeah, yeah. we're just continuing to perpetuate cycles of oppression. So disabled people need to be on the forefront of all matters pertaining to them. Like, honestly, it's, it's amazing how many advocacy efforts there are out there that are supposedly for people with disabilities, but not actually with them. Like, imagine if we did that for like other marginalized mm. populations you're like okay i've seen it happen with other marginalized populations oh my gosh i uh like, there was a there was a a national conference uh recently for not for not here in in a different country an unnamed country that had a topic of diversity and inclusion and all of the speakers were white, middle-aged, mostly female. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends was one of the speakers who hadn't realized that that was going to be the lineup and essentially gave up her spot to someone who had more expertise and could talk more to diversity and inclusion and actually add some diversity to the, the lineup. So I have That's definitely <laughs> seen it happen many times. That was this year. That was like only a couple months ago so it's uh yeah. it's 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 yeah it's it's strong and still out there unfortunately yeah i think representation and um live experience are super essential for for these types of of things um and especially with with something as broad as disability where there are so many intersections of race ses mm. like it should be a broader, um, broader, I guess, representation of individuals um, because disability represents the entire world. Um, doesn't matter what country yeah, you're in. I think that's the other. It doesn't discriminate. So hard, yeah. Hard for people to grasp is like it is so inherently intersectional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's, um, yeah. What's I gonna say? <laughs> so. Yeah, I I just think flipping those power hierarchies is is just so critical to any kind of 
disability justice work or any social justice work like it so with, with yeah. something like b3 where you've built that from <laughs> scratch just obviously that's well not obviously but i'm assuming that that's easier to build that more like not ableist culture in something that you're building from scratch mm-hmm. have you looked into or heard about it, like how easy can it be done into say an already established uh business or company or that sort of stuff like you're talking about like it's very obvious that and i so what you were saying before uh greg about your class i get from a a a, like again theoretical perspective with the whole concept of uh universal design which i've spoken about on the podcast before i have my own issues with that but as a basic concept, yeah, you need to be designing for whoever needs the like, has the most needs or the most diverse needs, and then everyone else can still use that. Like, if you need a ramp to get into the house, I can use a ramp. I don't need to be in a wheelchair to use a ramp. I can walk up it. Like, I it fits my needs as well. So you need to be providing the widest amount of diversity, whether it's content access or building access, whatever it is. A lot of the pushback from general public, even just looking at the concept of universal design, is like this building's been like this already. It's going to cost too much to do. Uh-huh. This this board has already been well established. How are we going to change the board yet keep the culture, which is generally what they want, even though the culture is probably the thing that needs to change the most. Um, are we looking at something that is best suited to businesses companies practices starting from scratch or is it something that we can change and implement for what already established things okay two things okay um number one yes i i do agree in part especially with the universal design um at least for universal design space i think like universal design of like content and learning and those can be implemented at any time mm-hmm. but especially with existing spaces it is they do do that. They play those number games and they do that cost benefit analysis. Like, oh, it's going to cost us this and it may benefit two people. Hmm. Mm. How does that work for us? Um, so yes, um, that's been helpful that we are starting from scratch because we can front, we can front load it with universal mm. design. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then number two, one of the things that we definitely want to do with our, our practice, our non-traditional paths but also through B3 specifically is get into those other employment spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we hope to have a, um, a permanent lo- location in a local um, library next year. And we're planned, we plan to use that as a, a vocational training, but that really doesn't fully describe it because what we intend to do with it is have B3 team members come there and work and we learn their strengths, um, the, their support needs, their access needs, um, what kind of thing, how they work in the workplace, how are they best going to work in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Learning style, yeah. Yes, and then we occupational have, profile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then we equip them with this knowledge in whatever format is going to be most effective for them, and then we take it to employers and go, here's how you can adapt your workspace, here's how you can make this person um, feel like they belong and and provide them the most um, amazing support so they can be successful within your workspace. So Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's starting from our small unit and then yeah and also consulting supporting the person to self-advocate not just us telling them what to do but them articulating for themselves what they need is important um but yeah that's that's how we hope to really maximize our impact with b3 rather than keeping our inclusive universal design practices isolated yeah like we should like we should consult with other businesses and and how can we um best leverage our ot backgrounds and also the expertise of our team members um and creating a a better workforce because you know that's what it is it is better to have Mm -hmm. diversity inclusion and there's research behind that and we're going to show that to the employers we consult with like better organizational culture better innovation like um creativity like it's it's just no question that like it's it's not just altruism and and that's something we really emphasize within b3 is we don't do this for like a feel-good type experience like oh look at this disabled person like i was gonna ask you about that too because i feel like that is potentially uh a sentiment that you might come up against a lot at the moment, like with the, like with your pop-up stores and that sort of stuff. Do you Mm -hmm. feel like you get many people that either come past or come and have a conversation, that sort of stuff with that's where their head's at? Like, Oh, look at the, look at you doing this lovely thing for these people that can't do things for themselves kind of thing. Like, I feel like just knowing the general public here, like I feel like that's the kind of, mindset that a lot of people end up in and then like i i used to work in, for a disability support agency when i was in uni uh while i was at uni and that was whenever i used to tell people like that's what i do for a job they're like oh that must you know give you the warm and fuzzies i'm like it's a job like <laughs> okay yeah that's not why i'm doing it and i don't think that's why like the people that i did work with i don't think that's why they want me there either so that i can you know fill my heart cup or whatever it is Um, Yes, we do run into that very often. And I'm perhaps the first one to say, I'm not going to turn down support or money from anybody just because I don't, that's not my like reasoning behind it, just because they're coming from a charitable mindset. Um, A couple things on that. Um, I'll let her talk about how we like to use language and we like to give team members opportunities where they're in positions of like a dignified position. Um, and use that kind of to reframe what people are thinking about it being like a charitable yeah, thing. Awesome. Uh, but but um, there's like this idea of leveling up. Um, and it's just that everybody's going to be at that stage at some point. Um, I'm sh- I know like there have been times where I've been at that stage for different for different things. And as you learn more as you connect I was just about to say as you are invited within the community (laughs) Uh and you get to experience it firsthand then you start to it starts to change and you start to level up your understanding from you know the the charitable mindset to acceptance and then to unlearn those preconceived ideas yes um and then to acceptance then to allyship and then to um being an accomplice yeah but is it is it possible, like, because you talk about getting that sort of level up experience by being accepted in the community, what about the people that are just like 
oh, look, I'll go and buy a coffee and have the, like, it might be a five-minute interaction. Is there any, like, how, how, I don't know how to say it, how are you roping them into this sort of trying to change their mindset? Yeah. Well, I, I think the vehicle of our social impact is connection. And it is very likely that for someone's first exposure to B3, they're coming with those kinds of intentions. But as they um, get to know our team and, and start coming back and building authentic relationships, we would hope that there would be some mindset shifts. Um, and I, you know, I talk a lot about like my own allyship journey. Um, when I first, like not knowing that I was neurodivergent, like started coming alongside the, the disability community and getting involved in advocacy, I certainly had some feel good intentions. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, again, we have to meet people where they're at. Um, and not everyone is going to be awakened and mm. like totally woke on social justice. <laughs> yeah, yep. And um, we can't exclude those people. And B3 is about creating a space where everyone belongs. Um, and, 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 but it is the expectation that they would, they would grow in their understanding. Um, but I, I do also want to talk about how other inclusive coffee shops do it versus yeah, yeah. how we do it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so there, this is, this is actually like a movement across the U S right now. Like okay. there's, I don't know if this is happening in Australia, but there's tons of so-called inclusive coffee shops that are out there. Um, one in particular I can think of, um, to point to that people would know is uh, Biddy and Bo's there like all over the country they're, they've franchised. Um, but it definitely does, like when I went for the first time, send this message of, oh, like, let's, let's go see the people with disabilities make coffee. And like, they're almost like show animals. Like it's, yeah. it's sickening. Um, and I guess how we aim to combat that is through leveling the playing field um, again, with this, this power differential between people with and without disabilities. So in other inclusive coffee shops, and honestly, I don't even know why they're calling them inclusive because it's, it's really just people with disabilities being showcased and then they have their able-bodied supervisors making say, sure they the managers, right. A bit the managers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for B3, it's a fully integrated model. We have people with and without disabilities working together alongside each other. We embrace interdependence. We don't expect people to be independent, you know? Um, and we all have roles that are suited to our strengths. And if we need help, we ask for help. And that's just the culture of our team. And there's no... Um, distinguishment between the able-bodied members of our team and the people with disabilities like we all wear the same t-shirt we all are just in it together there's no supervisory roles at all um it, it's a doing together it's it's a being belonging and becoming better together which are our three b's yep um so i i, I think that ultimately is what's helped us 
to the greatest extent possible <laughs> avoid um, that feel good narrative. Um, you know, in some ways it's unavoidable, but positioning disabled people as the primary voices of what we're doing is just so key. Like we literally have our disabled team members taking over our social media daily mm. and and sharing about the team updates and um you know it, everyone has the ability to influence the direction of B3 it's it's not just mayor greg like yeah, it's yeah. i don't like we've completely transformed in response to covid like we, in response to what our team members were saying um, and their need for more social connection and, and a time of isolation, we created this vibrant online community as an extension of our, our pop-up coffee shop model. Um, and so I think we recognize that people with people come to B3 for all different reasons. Um, I would say probably over half of our team members don't even like coffee. And, you oh, know, some of, some, of, oh. some of them are just coming for the social aspect. Some of them want to gain vocational skills. Um, some are just there because, you know, they just want to be a part of something. Um, so, yeah, same uh, as any job like this. You go into any workplace, there's going to be people there that love the job there's going to be people there that are just to get a paycheck there's going to be people there that are you know trying to climb the corporate ladder like everyone's got their own motivations for for, for doing it yeah yeah and um and like she was saying but every team member has their own strengths um that we can leverage and like things that they're passionate about that we mm. can leverage um not only with the pop-ups and not and in within the um, like the coffee space, but also with our programming um, and and social engagement, community engagement types of opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain things, for example, our last pop-up. I guess is a bad example because it's not a social engagement. Well, it is community engagement opportunity. At our last pop-up, there's a position where you basically share flyers and and rope people in i could never ever ever do that spot like no way if somebody said walked by me or said no to me like social rejection i'm done I i'm think, out i think i'm with you on that I, yeah but there I, are I certain team members where they just go out there and they're I so dynamic it. and like so and they love it too because yeah. they feed off of that kind of energy so i'm putting That's people awesome. in the positions where they're strong putting people in positions where they love what they're doing um, and giving people the opportunities to create um, more opportunities, I guess, for engagement. Yeah, create their own vision for B3. And like, we're constantly evolving. Like B3, at this point, we have like a, a four-pronged business model because <laughs> there's so many different aspects of, of what we do based on the needs and interests and ambitions of our team members. Um, and, and I think this is something that can be applied in everyday OT practice, even traditional settings, like your client should be directing their own path. <laughs> like, um, we have team members every week who lead our Sunday socials. We don't want to tell them what, what they should do for mm. their 
their social engagement. Like that should be based on what their interests are. And, and maybe they want to do bingo that week, or maybe they want to talk about um, their special interest or like whatever it is. Um, they should have the autonomy to do that. And it shouldn't be directed by us. <laughs> so I think one of the cool things that I saw a little while ago, I don't, I'm assuming you might still be doing it, but was the artwork on the, uh, mm -hmm. coffee bags. I thought that was so cool. Oh, like, yeah. I wish I could get yes. it in Australia because I'd order that. That was awesome. Yes. So one of the B's is diverse ways of being, right? So, and by that, we mean people, all people express themselves differently. And, um, and we, we really want to embrace that. So mm. one of the ways we do that is through, um, really giving us a space for all forms of communication. And many of our team members are non-speaking or maybe they just don't prefer to communicate in a traditional way. And so we want them to be a part of what we're doing too. And so we, you know, they're, they're great artists. We have one of our team members wakes up at 5 a.m. every single morning, makes a french press for his family and and a lot of people already and sends us his artwork and and then we 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 want the world to see that like yeah. there's so many gifts that our team members have that um have just been undervalued um and and yeah and artwork is just another form of expression um and, and also a unique glimpse into the way that they experience the world. Um, so yeah, our, our, we're actually having our website redesigned right now and it's gonna be full of all of our team members artwork like embedded in it. And awesome. we're super excited about that. And the, the artwork actually um, is supposed to like convey the notes of the, the blend okay. as well. Um, that's it's kind of a creative spin on it. Yeah. Um, and I, one other thing I wanted to say about like how we uh, really intend to promote our team members in a dignified way is that we emphasize carefully crafted, crafted specialty coffee. Like this isn't just dispensing coffee That's and handing it off. Like like our team members have real expertise. They do pour overs, they do French press, like, and we don't just take the easy route um, because we design the space in a way that's accessible for people to develop mastery. And for people um, that are listening that aren't coffee people, they're very different techniques and very different skill sets. Like I'm a big pour over person. French press to me, like I'd have to actually look up timings and stuff. I don't know that much about it, but like they're yeah. very, so, they yeah. take time and, and patience and the, the very specific skill sets, which is awesome. Yeah. And all of our team members have like a preference for like what their favorite mm. manual brewing method is. And um, yeah, so, so we, we really want to showcase their expertise because, you know, this this isn't like we want to produce a, a good product. This is representing our team. So yeah, it's, it's good coffee <laughs> and <laughs> I'm a coffee snob. So I know it is. You are. Yes. And that's how, I mean, that's how we initially connected was over coffee internationally. <laughs> see how good coffee. 
You can connect yes. overseas. That's right. Anything else you wanted to cover this or, uh, well, this evening for me, this morning for you? Yes. Anything um, we've forgotten or haven't done in enough depth or? I don't know. I mean, I just feel like there's so much that needs to be overhauled within our profession. And <laughs> I appreciate you um, giving the space for our um alternative ideas to be heard see, <laughs> so. I, I mean it's kind of you to say that but i don't see them as alternative <laughs> like to me like okay. the their ideas that resonate with me and yeah the thing that i like about them is that they're ideas that i've not stuff that i've been told it's just conclusions that i've come to and gone wait this doesn't add up and then yeah i hear ideas like uh, the ones we've talked about today and I'm like yeah that's sort of how I feel even if I haven't been able to sort of pinpoint exactly what it is I'll be like that's it that's something that I've sort of been thinking for a while or practicing for a while um, so yeah I don't I don't see them as new and out there and that kind of stuff I think it's to me it's just this is the way shit should happen this mm -hmm. is the way it should be so why aren't we doing it which is you know, I mean, that's we've we've spoken on the podcast before. That's why I bring people on the podcast is because these are the ideas that people need. So yeah, yeah no, thank you, thank you both for for coming and sharing your expertise uh, in this this really interesting. I I genuinely find this a really interesting area to to learn about. So um, yeah, thank you both for for coming along. Yeah, thanks for having okay. us. That's all right. Yes. And where where can people find you? Social media, your website. I know it's being redesigned, but we'll throw that in oh, there yes. as well. New site will be. Um, so then, well, they can just go to our site right now and it'll redirect them. So www. I probably don't need to say that. B3coffeestand.com. Um, and then you can find my, we have a lot of Instagram accounts. You can find my Instagram at Jacqueline Gerda underscore OT. Um, you can find our OTs for neurodiversity, like social media movement on Instagram and Facebook at neurodiversity underscore OT. Um, you can find B3 coffee at B3 coffee. Um, and then you, you have a interesting um, platform. Yeah, very theory-based. Yeah. Um, my on Instagram and Facebook, which would be Renaissance OT. And if I've you want seen to that. I have seen that. I didn't realize that was you. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a process. We're working through it. Um, but yeah, Renaissance OT. And then uh, my personal stuff is in the bio. So Awesome. Well, yes. I'll throw links to all of that uh, in the show notes. So anyone can can check out what you guys are, are putting out there and I, I do encourage people to do it because uh, like I said I, I found it really interesting and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to to, to bring you back on and, and have a chat about all things neurodiversity so thank you very much guys it's it's been a lot of fun and I've I've learned a heap yeah this is awesome thanks thank you. Brock. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. 
If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.